You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, folks, hey, welcome to another episode, and I am thrilled to introduce my guest today, which is Sharon Hirsch. A couple of things about Sharon. First of all, she's local, so she is sitting in my, I don't know how you describe it, Sharon, my opulent, <laughs> my opulent podcast studio. Sharon's a licensed professional counselor. She lives about an hour down south, and my wife and I first met Sharon uh, at an Andy Gullihorn concert. Hmm. Uh, those of you who don't know Andy Gullihorn and Jill Phillips, uh, and those of you who like good music, boy, I would just say some of the finest singer-songwriters I've ever heard, actually. So check them out. But through through them, I got to meet Sharon. And uh, Sharon has written a couple of books. The most recent one is called Belonging. And I've been looking forward to this for a while because it's a, it's a fantastic book. Listen, I think uh, if you're a faith leader, particularly, uh, and you're feeling a little stuck, maybe your next move is to read a therapist. I say that because most therapists I know, I happen to be married to one, are just are, are so much more skilled than the rest of us at integrating their pain into their life in a way that brings transformation. And, and Sharon, I'd, I'd say that's part of your story. Yes, it is, Steve. It's great to be here face to face. Yeah, we what don't a treat. get to do that very much right now. All right, so uh, you started right out of the gate. The, the first thing I want to explore with you, it, it, I was reading along, and this moment is what stopped me in my tracks. You had talked about being pulled over for a DUI. Mm. You go to a therapist. The therapist asks what secrets you have. You talk about your DUI. But then you made this fascinating statement when you said you came to the realization that you hated yourself. Yes. Um, That's the therapist I often refer to as the one who didn't know anything. He'd never been to graduate school. He'd never been trained. I told him how much smarter I was than he was and that I could teach all the material that he was giving me. And he just humbly hung in there with me. (laughs) And I think maybe he was getting at the end of his rope when he said, is there anything you haven't told anyone? And I I said, I don't think so. I think I've told it all this time. And he said, I think maybe you should go pray about that. I didn't know he was a Christian therapist, but we became connected in that fashion pretty quickly in our relationship. And so I left his office, and about four hours later, I recognized the secret that I kept even from myself. That's what was so striking to me about it, is it felt like you were not aware that you hated yourself. Well, because another one of my addictions, besides alcoholism, is performance. So when we perform, when we're always busy, always accomplishing, always doing something, we operate above our shame and our contempt. So we all experience moments of shame and moments where we kind of wish, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I can't believe I said that. But for those of us who are high performers and who learn that probably from the age of seven, uh, we learn to operate above shame and contempt. And truly, I did not even know it was there but it was the 500-pound weight that I carried around with me everywhere. All the while, I think of something that Henry Nowen said, that he said, I spent most of my life walking on a tightrope, waiting for applause until I fell off and broke my leg. And then you get up and do it again. 
because facing that self-hatred feels insurmountable. So the reason it, it struck me, I, th- I think it struck me because you were so visceral about it. I just I felt like I was there. Mm-hmm. It also struck me because I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of work with pastors right now and we're doing inner critic work. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting how harsh their inner critic is. And I was thinking, oh, when Sharon comes on the show, I wonder if you could help us figure out if we actually hate ourselves. <laughs> how did you, how do you help someone or how did you come to that realization? Well, I think, first of all, the Holy Spirit helped me come to that realization because nothing was going to change until I faced everything in my life was operating from that place. I describe it as this part of me that I kept locked up in the basement of my life, and I hated her because she got me into trouble. If people knew what she was really like, she was embarrassing, she was afraid, she was vulnerable, she was scared. She did things that if they were displayed on those screens we have in our churches, everyone would be shocked and I assumed everyone would run away. And so I think I kept her pretty hidden. And that's why we don't sometimes know that self-contempt is so powerful. Self-contempt, and this is important for leaders, pastors especially, is also the major disconnector in our lives. It comes, as you said, from that critical, analytical left side of the brain. And when we're in the left side of the brain, analyzing ourselves. Did I say the right thing? Did I really help them? What do they really think of me? We can't be connected to people. We can't be kind to ourselves, much less offer that kindness to others. And so often what I ask clients to do, and I'm thinking of clients who are, have respectable jobs, who- They're very successful. And often it is the most attractive, highly successful people that I've learned to suspect yeah, yeah, yeah. are filled with that spirit of contempt because then that creates a duality in us. And so the larger the gap between what's going on in the inside and what it looks like on the outside, the more vulnerable we are to depression, anxiety, addiction, and shame. So if you are saying things like, if they only really knew me, yeah. it, no, I'm not really that good, or I have to keep being this good, or people will walk away, you are energized by contempt, and it, it will keep you disconnected from yourself, from others, and from God. Yeah, so I'm jumping around in your book a little bit, but then later on you you cover the false self and the true self. Obviously, these ideas are connected. How, how would someone go about beginning to figure out what their false self is or looks like? Well, I think you don't want... If, if you live in such a way that it might be a disaster to you if everyone who really knew you got in the same room... You're living out of your false self. Oh, wow. That's a great way to put it. Are you saying that like some people would compartmentalize what different people know about them? Yes. But never get that party together to compare notes. Right. So if your daughter's there or your spouse, your coworker, 
a parishioner who comes and sits on the front row and takes notes every week. For me, it's clients who come in and love me and write down everything I say. And I tell my adult children that and they just roll their eyes. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, If they all were in the same room, what would they say about me? My life has been a process of integrating that. Because if you don't, you will live in fear of being found out, fear that you're an imposter, knowing that there's something fraudulent about you. And I mean, this is if you have any sense of awareness or sense of self and are not completely absorbed in narcissism. Yeah, which... Our mutual friend Chuck DeGroote is recently teaching us is alive and well in the church. Yes. But I think that the single greatest emotion that someone who is ruled by contempt or a false self has is loneliness. Because it is impossible to get close to someone who is always trying to control things. And if you don't really like yourself, then I have to control how I look to you. I have to be really careful about what I say to you. I have to maybe prepare things ahead of time and talk through who I'm going to be with you, which is exhausting. I think the single greatest emotion that the person who is living out of their true self has is peace. And we see the absence of that today, I think because, as you referred to that time in my life, when that actually very wise and wonderful therapist asked me to confront my self-hatred, he also then asked me to look at my loneliness, my busyness, my performance, all the things I was using to cover it up. And that's kind of the world that we're in right now that's numbing, busy, protesting, angry, agitated about every issue you can think of. Because if I'm left alone with myself, I'm afraid of what I'll find there. So Sharon, how long did it take you? Obviously, it's an ongoing journey. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, maybe they're aware that they have an inner critic, but this is the first time They've actually considered that they don't have to have it. Hmm. That's been my experience. Is, is when I talk to people, it's it's like a fatalism. Like it's just it just is what can be done. What was the journey? How long was the journey from that awareness of self hatred to when you first started to get a glimmer of that peace? How long did that take? Well, this therapist that confronted me was back in two thousand nine. So, and I'm 61 years old today, Steve, so I wish I could say I came into this in my 30s or my 40s even, but it was, you know, closer to 50. Yeah. And I think coming into an awareness of it requires a vulnerability about it because we cannot slay the inner critic by ourselves. And so that means there have to be people that I show up with. And say, I remember when I was in treatment in 2009, my dear pastor, Peter Hyatt, showed up to visit me. And he said, well, Sharon, if if you don't do so much, if you're not so busy, if you don't accomplish things, who would you be? And the thought terrified me. I I said, well, I, I know this. No one would like me. And he said the most remarkable thing. He said, no, that's the Sharon we love. The vulnerable, 
alcoholic, relapsing, needy Sharon is the one we want. I I get emotional even thinking about that because that should be the good news of the gospel that we tell to one another and tell to ourselves. But it's so good. It has to be true. Because what else would be good news? Yeah, that's a Fred Beekner saying, are you a fan of Frederick Beekner? Oh, yes. Yeah, the good news is too good to be true, so it must be true. Yes. You, you have a quote, uh, let, me, let me just grab it here. We don't carry our secrets, they carry us. Let's talk about that. I think growing up as a performer and in a somewhat legalistic religion where I remember hearing countless sermons that you better not mess up or God's going to put you on the shelf, I always envision myself on that shelf wherever it is. But Yeah, what <laughs> shelf? Right when you start digging into it. But I, I had a lot of secrets and mm-hmm. as an addict, uh, especially those secrets started to accumulate mm-hmm. as our friend um, Andy Gullihorn says, you know, faster than the interest on our credit cards can. But I kind of thought there were some secrets, including the DUI that I tell about in the first chapter in this book, Belonging. I thought I'd carry it to the grave. Uh, When I got my DUI, I was taken to detox, and I called a taxi cab driver to bring me home. I wasn't going to tell anyone. Yeah, because if I remember right, you were a retreat speaker. You had a public reputation. I'd written books. I was teaching at a seminary. And I, I just knew that if these secrets came out, I would lose everything. And God graciously is more committed to our liberation than He is to our bondage. He wanted me, instead of keeping this part of myself locked up in the basement of my life, He wanted me to operate my whole life through that room. Yeah. Which seemed unthinkable at first. And so as I began to tell some of the truths of my life, because I didn't have any choice about some things— yeah. That's the problem when you get in trouble with the law. Right. It some, gets public. <laughs> I'm pretty good at hiding things. Yeah. But there are some things that you can't hide. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I had to call a seminary and say, I don't think I'll be able to teach in January because I'm in a little bit of trouble here. <laughs> and what I discovered is what my pastor said to me was true, is people didn't say, we don't know we're gonna, what we're going to do without your teaching. They said, we just want to be with you. I couldn't believe it. And I, I do know that is not always the response. And that's why that inner critic is probably going off in a lot of people's hearts and minds right now saying, oh, right, you know, Sharon just had some, was lucky to have some people in her life that were kind or filled with grace. But most people are going to be judgmental. Most people are going to condemn you. Don't you think, though, that the reason most people are judgmental is they're just pushing off their own shame? Like, Oh, absolutely. Right? Somebody has to go first. Somebody yes. has to be in any community has to say, I'm a broken human being in need of grace. Yes. And what I've discovered in this most tumultuous time that we live in, where we're debating about everything, is that if you put those things aside and say, hey, have you been tempted to numb lately? Because I'm an alcoholic and I sure have wanted to run to the liquor store and just fade away for a few days. People are a little taken aback, and then they say, oh, yeah, me too. And those are the conversations that I'm for, Steve, the ones that allow us to say, me too. I see myself in you, and I want you to see yourself in me. And so that creates 
what we call intimacy, which is what we are dying for in these days. But intimacy simply means what the word says, into me, see. So if I haven't done that first, it'll never happen. When I was a hospital chaplain, I was 24 and 25. I was really mm-hmm. young. Very. And I really thought I knew my stuff. <laughs> I, I had a Bible college degree and I had a lot of personal charisma and I could work a room. And of course, thanks be to God, none of that was helpful in grief and death. And so God stripped me of it all. But I remember that was really the first group of people that could see things about me I didn't want them to see. Hmm. Some of them were things I didn't know. And I think it's a terrible feeling when people see things about you that you don't see. And then it's even worse that the second they say it is the first time you've learned it and then you know it's true. Yes. So I had a lot of those experiences. And then they also saw things that I was trying to keep hidden. So in my life, it took me, I think, I wish my wife was here to clarify. I think it took a solid three months for me to, because it was every day. This was an hour and a half every day Mm. when they were doing this invasive work. I think it was three months of that for me to let my guard down and discover that this was grace. Yes. And I mean, I think it indicates something about your heart because that letting the guard down. Yeah, that's what I wanted to explore. Is difficult for some of us. I I think of my dear, dear friend and mentor, Brennan Manning, who is no longer with us, but he tells in his last book, his memoir, All is Grace, that when he went to treatment, I actually went to treatment at that same place because I've been to treatment more than once (laughs) Um, at Hazleton. He left being known as a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Which it breaks my heart that he preached to a generation about grace and yet couldn't let his guard down to receive it. Because if I acknowledge a few things that I am broken And I am in that brokenness bent toward secrecy or hiding. And so that means I don't want to need you and I don't want you to need me because then we'd have to deal with the economy of trust. Yeah, right. And and complete exposure. Yes. And then if I don't trust me and I don't trust you, then certainly I don't trust God. And so then I have to become God which is what we addicts do. We figure out a way to deal with the sorrow and stress and tension of life by drinking something, eating something, buying something, doing something. And we have a thousand ways not to let our guard down. And it's exhausting. And so for me, I feel like God brought me to that, not my will, but thy will, surrender, Kicking and screaming, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, with handcuffs, basically. Yes. Yeah. Literally, yes. And I I think that even after that, like I said, I determined I wasn't going to tell anyone. Once you become aware of that inner critic, so I would stand to teach a class on addiction or to speak about the love of God at a women's retreat, and I'd think of those handcuffs. And it is a terrible place to be when I believe the good news for you. Yeah but I do not believe it for me. I think also, Sharon, it's a false sense of humility too. Like we think we don't realize that it's just a sophisticated version of self-righteousness, that I can tell you about the grace of God, but I'm not somehow eligible for it. So I, I had some of those experiences in therapy like you're talking about, and I remember a therapist saying to me, Sharon, you just have to be humble enough to recognize 
You really need Jesus yeah, more right. than most people. Yeah, right. You need an extra dose. Yeah. And I was like, humble enough. You don't think I'm humble? Yeah. And I pour myself out for other people. Right. And he yeah. explained there is this self-righteousness so in funny. thinking yeah. that God can go take care of everyone else, yeah. but I'm just fine, which really is about trust. And the thing about trust, Steve, is if we do not learn to entrust ourselves to one another and to God, we will never experience love. Yeah. Which to me, most leaders are starved of. Yeah. I remember one of my chaplain supervisors, Peter Keyes saying something to me about, what do you get out of that? Whatever it is I was doing, what's in it for you? And I remember saying, well, I'm a, I'm a selfless person. I'm a pastor. <laughs> and he's like, no, you wouldn't do it if you weren't getting something out of it. And he was trying to suggest that I was quite selfish and I wasn't having it. I remember fighting him about. And I think to go back to my life of secrets, most of us live a life of faith on the basis of shame. In other words, what can I do to not be caught, hmm. to not be seen, rather than what the good news proclaims is that we can be seen, known, and astoundingly still wanted. Yeah. That's the message this world is hungry for. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, you have all these little call-outs, just these little, it's a darkened box, and a little definition. Hmm. I thought it would be neat. I just grabbed four of them because they're all through the book. Contempt, blame shifting, entitlement, and relief. Let's start with contempt. How would you define contempt? Contempt is really believing that, and it, this sometimes is an unconscious belief, that there is too much tragedy in this world for me to deal with. Hmm. And so I'm going to say, well, those people are idiots. Because they haven't even thought through the issues on immigration or whatever. And, or I'm going to say, oh, I was so stupid to have gotten a car and drank and dr drive. And even there's this part of me rising up right now as we're talking that's when you say, well, Sharon, you were stupid. No, I was selfish. I was in pain. I was lonely. I was hiding. And But to face the tragedy of this world, I, I think it's why right now in our country, addictive behaviors have increased by 70%. Like since COVID? Since the pandemic. Is began. that right? Yes. And I think they're going to keep going up because most of us cannot keep from facing that there is tragedy in this world. But rather than saying, yes, we have racial inequity, we have a government that sometimes does not know what to do and cannot save us and sometimes lies to us. We use contempt. We wield it like a sword of control to say, no, those people are wrong. I'm right. This group is safe. Let's stay behind this wall. Let's not get involved with those people. And it's all fueled by contempt for ourselves and for others. So contempt is a defense mechanism against facing the pain of others of the world. And the pain in ourselves. In, your, in ourselves. Yes. Uh, blame shifting. This is a fun game, by the way. <laughs> blame shifting is definitely believing that someone else is responsible for my pain, my sorrow, my confusion. We 
live, I just read this in Time Magazine, they're calling this the season of blame, mm-hmm. when everyone is pointing fingers. Yeah. Because when things happen that we cannot explain, our first response is to blame someone. And that keeps us tied up in that bondage of hiding, of not telling the truth about our lives, of not trusting, because blame plants a crop of entitlement, anger, anxiety, and a lack of ownership. What I learned, and you know, I told that story of the DUI for the first time, of all places, I didn't plan it, at the University of Central Florida to a bunch of college kids. I think there was something in me that knew this will be a safe place to get started telling the truth about my life. When I owned it, it stopped owning me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Entitlement. Entitlement usually comes, believe it or not, out of woundedness. We all can have pictures of prominent people in our world right now who we believe are entitled, entitled to their opinions, their perspective, their political persuasion, what they believe about wearing masks, you name it, what you believe about pumpkin spice lattes. Uh, And entitlement is a way of grabbing on to some false power to deal with the emptiness in our souls. So I know that people who are entitled, and they're often not the most lovely people to be around, probably have deep wounds where they began to feel that emptiness and believe if someone does not fill this, I will not survive. So I will set my life up in a way that people agree with me, that people do what I need to be done, that people ag- agree with my position or follow me or like me on social media. A- and it's like chasing the wind, Steve, because there is not enough people out there to fill that emptiness. But once again, to face it means to kind of sit down in that pile of dust and take our contempt, our blame, uh, our emptiness. To God. Before we get to relief, one of the, one of the things I'm just trying to pay attention to what's going through my mind as you're talking. It feels like the great seduction today is because we value authenticity so highly. Hmm. We're getting better and better at faking it. Oh, I can give a testimony to that. I think Brennan Manning is the one who said that. You know, who's often told he was so honest about his life, and he said, and yet I only tell people as much as I am willing for them to know. Let me just jump in. I'd love to hear more, but my all-time favorite Brendan Manning story. So you knew him. I, I was one of the millions that was profoundly impacted by his mm-hmm. writing. I've never met him. Late in his life, Hurricane Katrina, he's living in New Orleans, and he writes an article for Christianity Today about the whole point of the article was anybody can be a neighbor to someone in time of need. That would, that's how it mm-hmm. summarizes it. He's living in a high-rise apartment complex. The floods are coming, and he rescued several senior citizens. He mm, actually I remember that. went out of his way, and he's writing this, but at the very top of the article is an editorial note in italics from, I think it was Mark Galia, whoever was running Christianity Today. We regret to say that Brennan called us the night before we went to print. This whole story is made up. He didn't do any of it. Mm-hmm. 
And he called us so late that we can't take it out. So it's in here and it's not true. Brennan asks for our prayers as he continues to struggle with his addictions. Yes. And at that stage in Brennan's life, as his book describes, he was suffering with what we call wet brain disease, where you actually don't know what's true and what's not true. Well, what I love about it is he's a present tense, flawed human being, not a... his. I, I found his power to be that he's still struggling rather than, well, I got over my, and now I'm this spiritual guru. Yes. He kind of, to me, that that article dismantled the the guru. Yes. And I don't think he ever wanted to be a guru. I I think he wanted to experience grace and his own defenses sometimes got in the way of that until then. His mind failed him, and I think God said, you've suffered enough, and took him home. But I think we all have these struggles with shame, contempt, entitlement, or performance. And what we're trying to do when we cover up the shame, or we don't tell the truth like Brennan did, we feel contempt, oh, I'm such a fraud for even writing that article, and then we just perform over it. We're hoping that what we'll get to on that outer level is love. But we've already set ourselves up to not get the thing that we long for the most. Because the antidote to shame is sorrow, admitting that we live in a world that does not work. And the antidote to contempt is brokenness, admitting, as you said, that I am flawed. I am more flawed than you will ever know. And the antidote to performance is needing Jesus. I mean, really needing him personally. That's how we get to love. All right. The last one then is relief. Tell us about relief. And relief is something that I'm so familiar with. Um, (laughs) It is the belief that, once again, life is so painful that I deserve It kind of combines some of the things that we've been talking about. I deserve a break from this. I mean, McDonald's made billions of dollars on that slogan years ago in their commercials. You You deserve a break break today. Oh, they say you deserve it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so now in modern day, we go on Amazon and it tells us on every page what we deserve that might give us a break from the pain of living. I I think a lot of people believe that relief is primarily energized by pain. I just can't take it anymore. I'm at a breaking point. I've been hurt in ways you can't imagine. This season is way too much for me. And, And that is certainly true. There is pain that needs to be addressed and offered compassion. But relief is also energized by a demand, what Dan Allender calls the clenched fist that says, if God were as he should be, he would not let things go on like this. He would not let children be hurt, women be abandoned, men utterly fail. And so because God is not as he should be, I'll take over Hmm. and give myself a break. Yeah, you wrote, the cry for relief is really asking God, what are you doing? A question that we're all asking these days. Mm -hmm. And it's the good news I find in this season that maybe if we could be still enough, we'd hear his answer. 
which of course is not that he's going to take our pain away or heal our diseases or restore our finances or get rid of our addictions. But what he's doing is trying to love us, no matter what state we're in, no matter what we believe, no matter who we're going to vote for, that he welcomes us and wants to flood that basement room in our lives with worthiness. So then we say to others, come on in here. You belong. Well, Sharon, you are about to break into where a lesser woman would fear to tread as we navigate the gauntlet of anxiety questions. <laughs> um, tell me, when, as a therapist, what sort of therapy situations generate anxiety for you? I feel anxiety when I'm bored. With a client? Yes. What makes you bored? Um, often people will come in because they have social anxiety or they have a more introverted personality, which has caused problems in their school life or their work life. And so just sitting across from someone, probably it comes, Steve, from the family I grew up in. Of course, most things come from our sure. stories. Yeah. And I had a father who was very quiet, a still waters run deep kind of guy. And I can remember making conversation for the whole family at the dinner table. Okay. And so when I feel that anxiety of, oh, no, nothing's happening. And so that's, once again, then I'm in that left side of my brain, yeah. which creates anxiety and disconnection. And I am learning in those moments to say to myself kindly, Sharon, come on back. Be present. See what happens. Wonderful. Um, one surefire way to generate anxiety is to make a mistake in front of another person. <laughs> uh, some of yours are public. Well, tell us about a recent mistake you've made and what you did to recover from it. A recent mistake that I have made, I've made so many, but I was at the gas station running late, which is par for me. And I now, if my kids are listening, they would say, no, mom, you always make us go 30 minutes early. But that's because of anxiety. But I'm usually running late and I could not get the gas pump to work. And I tried various means of putting cards in and punching numbers. And I do feel the embarrassment as I say this. I kicked that gas pump and said a four-letter word that I don't use a lot and looked at the car in front of me. And it was a woman that I had just met a few weeks ago who was inviting me to speak at their women's retreat at their church <laughs> in the so spring. <laughs> and um, she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, well, now you know I'm human. It was another one of those moments where I thought, if people really knew me, they would reject me. The Leadership Institute did a study years ago and found that 99% of leaders believe that if people really know them, they'll be rejected. 
And yet that's just not true. She called me later that day and said, I laughed all afternoon about seeing you at the gas station. And, you know, maybe avoid that word at our retreat, but we're looking forward to having you. (laughs) As if most of those women haven't thought or said (laughs) that word. Yeah. Okay. So you get back in the car before she calls you laughing. What's going on in Mm -hmm. your mind? Well, this is kind of who I am. Okay. Self-acceptance. Yes. And I I do sometimes say things that I shouldn't say and kick gas pumps. And I also thought, and this really is the heart of the message of the book, Belonging, I can't wait to talk to my clients today who are agitated by this season that we're living in because I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You're living in the same world that they're trying to navigate. Frequently, not always, caregivers can be the last to know when they're not okay. Yes. What signs do you give off to other people that show that they know you're not okay before you're aware of it? Oh, I I thought you were going to ask what signs I give to myself. That'd be too easy. Yes, that's too easy. (laughs) There's a gauntlet. Um, There's a gauntlet. Well, my clients and my family all know, so you're going to see that it's been a stressful week for me since I've been in the sixth grade when I have been anxious. I have scraped at the sides of my fingers. Okay. And so... Sometimes I'll have clients who will come in and say, oh, it's been a rough week. Oh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Same. So yeah. that it's kind of called cutting your fingers to the quick. Yes. Which is where the blood is, where the life is. Yeah. And I think there's some metaphor in there about knowing I need life because I'm being drained. Mm. That the the symbol on the gas tank says empty and I keep pushing it to full and that doesn't work in real life and it doesn't work in our lives either. When I do not return phone calls, voicemails, emails in a timely manner, people know that I am isolating. Okay. So I can be very busy still going to work, yeah. still seeing 25 people a week and yet not connecting with anyone who knows me. Yeah. Most followers of Christ experience a gap between what they believe about God and what they experience from God. I think we've talked about Brennan Manning. Is there a gap for you that you grapple with? I would have said no until this last year. In the book, I talk about my adult daughter, and I do have permission to talk about her even today. I called her this morning, Mm. and she has struggled profoundly in the last few years with depression, anxiety, and addiction. And I thought, this sounds so arrogant as I say it, but I thought, I'm the one to save her. I've been through it. It's what I do for a living. I love her more than my own life. You're the mom. And so I got her into treatment a year ago. And it was very expensive. And God provided the resources. I was just like, see, this is what God does. And there was much about the experience that was a big flop. And I just would walk the hallways of my apartment building saying, God, I thought I knew what you were doing. Yeah, You worked this out. You provided the money. We were going to save her. And I'll never forget the day that I was walking in the halls And I heard that still small voice in my spirit where God said, no, Sharon, I was saving you. 
Now, of course, he was doing things for my daughter because he's the God who does many things at once. But my plan to be her savior, that's another addiction of performance and arrogance and narcissism. And, you know, I thought every one of those thousands of dollars was to save her. And I laugh today thinking it, it was to save me. To really hear the truth that I still wrestle with as I long for her to fully recover. That Sharon, you are not sufficient. You don't have to be because I am. That is a gap for me still, Mm, Steve, of feeling like, yeah, but don't you need me to be just a little more sufficient than most people? I wouldn't mind topping you up once in a while, God. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. All right, the final question. Um, I have an obsession with 1 John 3 and 4. Hmm. This is how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. Even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And then later on, the, the profound idea that perfect love casts out all fear. Mm. And so I ask every guest and have uh, almost since the beginning now because I think we can either be, I, I think what tends to happen is fear and anxiety displace our awareness of the love of God. I don't believe they displace God's love, but our awareness of it for sure. And therefore God's love can displace fear and anxiety. So when in your life, Do you feel most fully and completely loved? I started a practice that I was encouraged to um, engage in by Chuck DeGroat, who you mentioned earlier, of meditating every morning. And I've been doing it for almost two years, and I'm up to five minutes. And That's a number to be proud of. I, I begin almost every session of meditation saying, God, I don't really trust you. And... I hear his response more and more these days, and it's simply, I know. And so what bridges that gap for me between experiencing the love of God is coming more and more to know heart and soul. God does not need me. He does not need this book. He does not need this podcast, but he wants me. And as my pastor said back in 2009, he wants the parts of me that are good for nothing. (laughs) That's good. And oh, how he longs for me to want him, even when he seems good for nothing. When he doesn't answer my prayers, doesn't go along with my plans, doesn't make my book sell, um, doesn't make my life look as intact as I still want it to look. He wants that intimacy of being loved right where we are and wanting Him because He wants us. That's what First John is about to me, yeah. is we love because He loves us. Yeah, good. So, Sharon, obviously, for those listeners in Colorado, you have a practice. But for people out of state or out of country— how can people get a hold of you if they want to engage you more? I have a website that is simply my name, Sharon Hirsch. It's H-E-R-S-H we'll dot a, com. We'll do a link on the show notes. And there's an email address there and all the contact information. And I would love to hear from people. Great. You know, folks, uh, Sh- Sharon's been on my list for a while. And I, I think today you, you heard why. It's because... 
in a very gentle but quick way, she really gets to what matters most. And I think what COVID has done is just exacerbate and exposed mm. a lot of the things you've been talking to us about, shame and contempt, which to me makes it a gift from God. It's actually a great opportunity for people to dig a little deeper. So Sharon, thanks so much. Thanks for what you shared today. Thanks for oh, coming on the show. Thank you for having me. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyouralliance.org.